0: And in that, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. I want to talk to you tonight about magnifying Jesus in your hour of trial. Um, Everybody in the room, matter of fact, let's just do a test here. Raise your hand if in all your years you have ever been done wrong by somebody. Raise your hand. Okay, we've got a couple of young people. They just hadn't gotten there yet. It'll happen, right? You know, I'm not a cynic, but I'm a realist. The reality is you live a little bit, you live long enough, and you will experience, um, usually in life, several instances of somebody doing you wrong, not that they simply made a mistake, but actually intentionally doing you wrong. And we're no strangers to that. Amazingly, The book of Philippians is known as the book of joy, but it is written while Paul is enduring the consequences of many people doing him wrong. And what makes the book so potent is not simply the words that are in it, but for me, it's understanding that this amazing book that we'll journey through is written by a guy who is suffering incredible injustice and can't do anything about it. So when we're talking about the Apostle Paul, he is incarcerated when he's writing the book of Philippians. He is in a Roman jail, or at least under house arrest, but he is chained to a Roman guard, and he is that way 24 hours a day. And by the way, this was after two years of being incarcerated at another place. He actually appealed to Caesar. They took him to Rome so he didn't have to go back to Jerusalem where he knew he'd be killed. So Paul has been going on his third year, perhaps even fourth by this time, of zero freedom. And if you study the word of God in Paul's life in particular, you find out he's a type A kind of guy. He wants to move. He wants to do things. He is making stuff happen. And there is no greater nightmare for a type A personality than being stuck in a room. And yet, all throughout his imprisonment and all throughout the prison epistles that he writes, you're just going to find out that he's trying to tell his readers, let me me explain how Jesus is greatly magnified when we are suffering injustice and we've been mistreated by others. And I will just go ahead and tell you, um, most of us are not quite there yet. Doesn't mean we can't be, and it doesn't mean that we haven't progressed further than we once were, but the reality is, most people, when suffering injustice, when being mistreated, when, when, when having all of the facts on their side, but having no breakthrough against the person that did them wrong, most of us are tempted to kind of retreat into a defeated mindset. Many get incredibly bitter and never bounce back. But from Paul's teaching in this little passage that we read tonight, we're going to figure out how we can actually intentionally magnify Jesus in the hour of our trial. And when we begin to magnify him in less than favorable circumstances, we're going to find out this wonderful, elusive thing called joy begins to come back into our lives again. And so I hope that you'll listen tonight, and I hope the Holy Spirit will instruct us. So let me give you the first thought I've got in verses 12 and 13 I want to talk to you that you can magnify Jesus in your hour of trial when kingdom perspective owns you. When you're looking at your situation and everything around you through a kingdom perspective, you're able to magnify Jesus. Look at verse number 12 at the end of verse number 12. I'm going to come back to the beginning of it in a moment. But we we realize when we are living with a kingdom perspective that you you can see that eternal gains are going to come from your temporary losses. What am I talking about? This is what Paul says. He says to the people he's writing at Philippi, he says, I want you to know something, that what has happened to me has actually, has really served to advance the gospel. Now, remember, I've already told you, Paul's in jail, he's been unjustly accused. His only crime... They have no penal code that he's broken. The only thing that he's done is he has been hounded by Judaizers, the people in Jerusalem that wanted to bring him under condemnation for blasphemy and heresy. And when he did not want to go back there, he appealed to Caesar. And as he's gone through Festus and he's gone through Agrippa and he's gone through Felix, they found out there's no legal charge against him, but he's appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar he will go. And as he's there, he's saying, I don't want you down at Philippi to feel sorry for me. I don't want you to send me flowers. I, I don't want you to spend your days pining away because the great apostle is locked up in a Roman um, prison. I want to tell you something. Actually, what's happening to me is having the effect that the gospel's being advanced. Now, Paul was an amazing man. Paul was had given his life and his life purpose and all of his resources, his reputation. His, his whole being was thrust intentionally onto the advance of the Gospel, the spreading of the message of Jesus Christ. Paul did not care what it cost him. He had been arrested on the Damascus Road by the resurrected Jesus Christ. He had found his life purpose. He had been forgiven. He'd been sa- he had been saved. The Lord took away his sight for three days, so he had three days to think about all of his past and then to ponder what the Lord had said to him when he called him to be an apostle. And now Paul has said, for years I've been advancing the gospel when I was free, but even in prison I'm able to advance it further. By the way, for you... um Bible nerds, the the word translated advance the gospel there, that phrase comes from a Greek word that means, it's actually used in, in other Greek literature to talk about running an obstacle course. It doesn't mean he's just plowing along, marching uninhibited. He is being resisted, he's being fought, there are obstacles in the way. It's actually used in other places also, talking about an army, a platoon that'll go ahead of the troops and cut through the thicket and prepare the way. And so what Paul's saying here is, it's not easy, there's obstacles, it's hard, it's difficult. But everything that's happened to me is resulting in Jesus' name being magnified. Now, that's easy for us to to look at Paul and say, go, Paul, awesome. But friends, it's the same purpose that we can enter into when we have a kingdom perspective that begins to own us. Let me just ask you, it's not to be answered out loud, but your present trial or your most recent hour of trial how much was your impulse to, Jesus, you must get the glory. Jesus, you must get the glory. Jesus, you must get the glory. Our flesh usually says, Jesus, you must get me out of this. Jesus, you must get me out of this. Jesus, you must get me out of this. But a kingdom perspective says, Jesus, you've got to get the glory. Now, There's nothing wrong with praying for your circumstances to change. I'm not saying that that's an illegal prayer in the kingdom, but what I am saying is when your circumstances don't change, when you can't reclaim your name, when you can never right the wrongs that have been done to you, when you never get your reputation back, can you come to that place where you say, but in the midst of it, because of the Holy Ghost and how I responded under his leadership, the name of Jesus was magnified. We'll go a little bit further into verse 13. Here's what it really starts to look like, because Jesus needs to become the headline in your suffering. He's got to become the headline in your suffering. and This is not easy. You can't do this in your flesh, by the way. You, you can only do this through the Holy Spirit, verse 13. He says, the, it's really advancing the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What's he talking about there? So there's a church in Rome. Paul had often wanted to go and visit them. But he never anticipated that it would be as a prisoner. But now, that's the reality. He has come to Italy, he's in Rome, he is a prisoner of Rome, and he is shackled in a place awaiting trial, and he is usually chained with about an 18-inch chain, 24 hours a day, whether he's awake or asleep, whether he is reading, writing, or going to the bathroom, he's always chained to a Roman guard. And think about that. Because Paul was able to get visitors, Paul was able to pray, he didn't have his total freedom taken away, he just couldn't leave. Think about those guards. They're chained to the apostle Paul. Think of his prayer life. Think of the, the te- testimony. He's, he's a witness, he's not only an apostle, he's also an evangelist, he's a pastor, he's a prophet, he's, he's everything. He's like the, the housing of all the fivefold gifting, and, and they're chained to him, so he's got a captive audience. Paul's like, hey, y'all don't feel sorry for me that I can't get away from these soldiers. Maybe feel sorry for them. They can't get away from me. In every prayer, in every testimony, in every witness, and to the point where as he's conversing with them and they're they're coming to learn, oh, this isn't some hardcore criminal. Why is he in there with the, the thieves and the and, and the rapist and the, the murderers and the, the rebels against Caesar, why is he in here? All we found out is this man is, is, is going around spreading the message of this one named Jesus in Israel who rose from the dead. How can that be a crime? And so the way that Paul is handling this injustice done to him is actually gaining him favor with the entire Imperial Guard. There were some nine to 10,000 soldiers that were classified at that time as the Imperial Guard, and these were some of the cream of the crop in the army, the Roman army, and they, they were paid well. As a matter of fact, there's even some extra-biblical historical literature that talks about when they were done, their severance pay would take care of them forever and ever and ever, which was unheard of at that time. So these guys were like top-tier soldiers, and Paul is writing to Philippi and he's telling them, he's like the whole imperial guard is hearing the gospel. Think of the church in Rome and how many Christians in Rome before Paul got there were praying, Lord, get the gospel in Caesar's household. Get the message of Jesus among these soldiers, Lord. If there's ever gonna be an outbreak, of Christianity is ever gonna make inroads, it's gotta come through Caesar's household. And how does the Lord do it? He, he didn't necessarily send a revival. He just put his... Uh, first choice servant right there in in the prison. And by the way, at the end of the book of Philippians, you're going to find out he adds a footnote. He says, all the brothers greet you, including those of Caesar's household. We have to be thinking and, and, and we have to be very determined not to react impulsively to the wrongs that are done to us when they happen. We, we can make the wrongs be circumstantial wrongs, but I think primarily where my heartbeat is tonight is when we're relationally done wrong. And all of you have experienced that. And it is so easy for us, and we'll come to that in a minute, to adopt a permanent victim mindset, but that's not what Paul did. I mean, if there's anybody in the flesh that might have a right to gripe, it's, it's, it's the apostle Paul, but he does not complain. He's, he's taking this terrible story, and he's erasing the negative headline, and he's putting at the top a new headline that says, Jesus is Lord. And that's what everybody's hearing. So go a little bit further. This is a, a pastoral moment. I, I, I'm going to tag back the beginning of verse number 12 because he opened all of this up by saying, I want you to know, brothers, you see, when, we're get, when we have a kingdom perspective, we're not ashamed of our troubles. Let, let me take a, a, a crack against fake phony Bible belt cheesy religion for a minute. Let me let me tell you what what has happened. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true here. Um maybe in spots, but I don't think that's our DNA. But it is so common in churches where people ask you how you're doing and if you happen to be in a season where you're miserable, where you're struggling, where you're hurting, where where you're on the on the wrong side of somebody's agenda, and the, the, the default response, because we're at church and because we're Christians, is, oh, doing great. Too blessed to be stressed. I'm, I'm, I'm wonderful. Things are great. God's on the throne. Glory to God. We have all these stupid things that we say that are actually, when you unpack them, they're just lies. Why? Because there is a thread among churchianity that says we don't even want to speak any negative reality. Because if you speak it, it's going to happen. Or if you speak it, it's going to get worse. Or if you speak it, you're you're saying that you don't have faith in God. No, Paul didn't buy into that. I'll take Paul's theology over that nonsense any day. Paul didn't deny he was in prison. Paul's about to unpack the reality that he's actually being targeted by other Christians for the purposes of envy and rivalry. And he he actually would write later to Timothy and say, don't be ashamed of my chains. Because Paul wasn't ashamed of them. Friends, I, I, want, I want us to know something. If we're asking for revival and we're asking for breakthrough and we're asking for healings to manifest and the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be used in a way that, that facilitates kingdom in our generation, we have to knock off this fakeness that's in the churches. We can't keep giving silly answers. And maybe it's going to take us a minute to foster deep enough relationships so that when somebody asks you how you're doing and the, answer, the real answer is, I'm not doing well. You know, we need to get to a point where we're, we're close enough to where we can say, hey, if you're really asking, I will tell you. Every now and then I'll catch somebody with that. They'll, they'll catch me in a, a moment, and if I know them well, and they'll be like, Jeff, how's it going? And You can tell they're, they're just, they're, they're chilling. They're, they're doing great themselves. Hey, how's it going? And they be like, you really want to know? You really want to know? Come on, man? sit down. I'll tell you how it's going. Because it's not always great. God's always great, but life isn't. And so Paul says, I want you to know what's going on with me, brothers. Yes, I'm in jail. Yes, I am, uh, I've am. i lost my freedom. Yes, I can't go out and plant churches right now. Yes, I've had my, my apostolic gifting limited down to this little area that I'm in. But I want you to know something. All of my struggles, all of my pains, all of my troubles, it's amazing that God's using them to advance the kingdom right here in Caesar's household. And again, that'll never happen by accident. And it's not just for Paul. Paul's not there for us to admire. Pa- Paul didn't have an extra dose of the Holy Spirit or a, a different level of the Holy Spirit that you're not, you're not, you don't have available. The same Holy Spirit lives in Paul, lives in you. And, and, and maybe what Paul did have is a, a little bit higher level of surrender, um, probably i I would say that for myself that he had a higher level of surrender for me but i'm not there to admire him he makes me thirsty when i look at his life i'm like look at how he handled this betrayal this abandonment this injustice he's not whining he's not crying he's not writing legal papers for somebody to come to his aid he's not suing anybody he's just saying let me tell you man jesus is getting glorified right now this is awesome and he didn't cover it up. He didn't cover up the nasty part of it and pretend that it was all good because the circumstances stunk. They were terrible. But the results from those terrible circumstances were glory for Jesus. So that is what I'm talking about. When a, a kingdom perspective owns you, you're going to find out what Paul would write to the church or had written to the church of Rome earlier. He had said in Romans 8.18, which everybody knows 8.28, actually like 8.18 better. It's I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared of the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And and Paul is, is highlighting that right now. He's like, yeah, my circumstances are terrible, but man, the glory. And it's the same thing for you and the same thing for me. I know some of your stories. I know some chapters in your stories. And I've been amazed at how some of you have glorified God and stayed faithful when when So many other people never would have continued through what you continued uh, through. And Jesus brought glory to himself through your agony and pain. He didn't bring the agony. He didn't bring the pain. But he allowed those situations to happen because he could entrust them to you and you stewarded them well. And in the end, we all looked at him because we looked at you and you were looking at him. And, And we were like, how is she doing that? I'm thinking of a couple of you in the room right now. How did she do that? And when you do it, it makes us want to do it when our time of trial comes. So I'm praying that a kingdom perspective will own us more deeply than it ever has before. So go down with me into verses 14 through 17. And again, this is kind of different, different angles on the same beautiful jewel. Uh, verses 14 through 17, when, when, when we're magnifying Jesus in our hour of trial, your joy will eclipse your struggle. I, I'm going to give you this. I can't stand up here and promise you that all your struggles will go away tomorrow if you just pray hard enough. And Paul can't tell you that either. You know why? He had a thorn in the flesh and he had an anointed prayer life and he asked God on three separate occasions, make this thing get out of my life. And God said, no, I'm going to leave it because you're going to learn that my grace is enough. So I can't promise you that your struggles will disappear tomorrow if you'll just pray. Um, but I can't promise you this that your joy can actually eclipse your struggle, if you want it to. Uh, Verse number 14. When your joy eclipses your struggles, other people are going to be stirred and strengthened. I like this. Verse number 14, Paul says this. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let's take our time with this for a minute. So the reality is this. As a Christian, Paul understood people were watching him. Now, he would have had probably more eyes on him um, than maybe you and I do because he was basically the human leader of the church at that time. So people are watching him. But I, I just want to say that if people know you're a Christian, they're watching you. And, and some of those people really are, are hoping for your best, but other people are looking to find a, a crack in your testimony so they can say, aha. Let me testify for a minute. I, I mention him regularly. He's been on my heart a good bit. The gentleman that led me to Jesus was my boss, and he was a zealous witness. He was hardcore, man. I was, I was living like a fool, and he knew it, and I called myself a Christian, and he wasn't going to have any of that. So, I mean, I'd come in, hung over, strung out, whatever, and he'd be looking at me. and like, you go to church yesterday? I ain't go to church. What would you do? Well, I slept most of the day. Why'd you sleep most of the day? Well, because I was up until four in the morning on Saturday. It's like, you're drinking again, aren't you? And I, yes, sir. And he just, he didn't play. And it made me mad. It made me mad in my flesh. And so I made it my point to keep my eye on that dude. He was hawking me for the gospel. I was hawking him to find one crack in his testimony. I couldn't find it. That dude kept operating with joy. He was consistent. He always gave the glory to God. He infuriated me sometimes because I was lost, and he was just going hard after my soul. But the reality of it was is when I looked at Scott's life, I was hoping to find something that would liberate me from my convictions. I wanted to be free from the reality that there standing before me was w- the first one I had ever seen in my, in my young mind at that time, a real Christian. I thought, surely he's a hypocrite because they're all hypocrites. Interestingly, I thought I was one, and I was the biggest hypocrite of all. Paul saying here, when they watched him, the result, because of how he was stewarding his hour of trial, was they actually became more confident in the Lord by watching what he was going through. And the result of their confidence was they began to spread the gospel with greater boldness. It, it kind of works that way. When we see one of the brethren, a brother or a sister in Christ, Whether it's somebody that we know personally and they're close, or it's somebody out there, maybe on the national or international landscape. And we see them mistreated and they don't budge, they don't don't cave, they don't crumble, they don't quit. We see them slandered. You know, people can say what they want about Billy Graham, but I'm going to tell you something. I don't know of a single Christian on the American landscape that ever lived a more consistent testimony than Billy Graham. He guarded his testimony. And, and he, from beginning to end, nobody can say anything about them. And it's just amazing to me. And when, when you look at people that endure, and especially, let's bring it off in the national landscape and just bring it right here. When you've got a brother or sister, a friend, and they're, they're pressing into Jesus through their pain, when, when they're, they're continuing to lift their hands in worship, And When when, when they don't quit, they keep moving forward, they keep sacrificing, they keep serving, they keep praising, they keep witnessing, they keep doing everything that they were doing when they were on the mountain, and they're doing it in the valley. That motivates us. I see somebody doing that kind of stuff, and I'm like, oh, man, I want to be a Christian like her. I want to be a Christian like him. And it emboldens us. For Paul in particular, when those people were seeing him being imprisoned, they actually got more bold. They're thinking, if he's willing to risk it, I'm going to risk it. If Jesus is worth Paul paying the price, Jesus is worth me paying the price. And so the amazing thing is, is when we have our minds made up that we're going to steward our struggles for the glory of Jesus, other people are stirred. They're watching. I'm, I'm going to tell you something. You don't have to be you know, super sensational to, to motivate people in the kingdom. I think most of us just love to watch faithful people. You know, the Bible doesn't say you have to be flamboyant, flashy. The Bible doesn't say you have to be slick. It doesn't say you have to be super cool. It doesn't have to be, you know, neon or 4K or anything like that. The Bible says most every man will proclaim his own goodness but a faithful man who can find. And so if we will just rise to the level of remaining faithful especially in the hour of trouble, you're going to stir people. By the way, our kids and our grandkids, you know, it's easy to get our worship on in here, isn't it? Is it? I'm not so sure tonight, but it's, it typically, theoretically speaking, it's easy to get our worship on in here, in the church house and everything. But our kids are watching us at home. Some of you have grandkids. Your grandkids are watching you at home. If, if you're all smiles and, you know, worshiping Jesus here and you're mean as a snake at home that's not the way we want to roll we want to see we want to live that consistent testimony so that when those that are coming behind us look at us they can remember oh man they pressed through they never gave up they didn't give in to grumbling and complaining and and give themselves over to a victim mentality they just kept pressing through verse 15 this is the victim mentality look at what happens here this is where it'll get get real for some of you um to shed the victim mentality, look at look what he says here. He, he's now talking about preachers. He's talking about his peer group. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And then down in verse 17, he's talking about the same people. He says, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. And they're thinking, they're intending to afflict me while I'm imprisoned. That'll bless your heart. Paul is aware of those that are running their mouths about them. Most preachers are, by the way. I went through a season. I'm so happy. I can say this now. I, years ago, I couldn't preach this because somebody, there'd be 10 people in the room think I'm talking about them. But I can, I can tell you, I'm not thinking of anybody in this room tonight. But I, I remember looking out from this st- stage and looking out during certain seasons. I'd, I'd be like... Yep, he's been running his mouth about me. There's his wife over there. She's actually doing it right now. I see her right now whispering to somebody else. And, and just looking out, you'd be like, man, there's 15 people out there that, you know, they got their bow and arrow out. And, and none, of them, none of them thought that, that I knew. But I knew. I'm sure I missed some. But most often, you know, God loves to expose gossips. Ooh, I'm feeling some grace on this. This is good. God loves to expose gossips. I mean, eventually, everything that's covered is going to get uncovered. What's whispered in the dark will be proclaimed on the rooftops. I didn't teach that. Jesus taught that. And and so, God sometimes waits till heaven. And there'll probably be some people, there might be one or two gossips that make it into heaven by grace. But there's the reality that, that Paul knew who these people were that were gunning for him. And what's funny is, he didn't say they were preaching the wrong message, he didn't say that they were heretics. He didn't say that they were preaching a false gospel because he does that in some of his other letters. Do you know what he says? He's like, No, they're actually preaching Jesus. We'll see that in a moment. He goes, But I know why they're doing it because Paul was out of the way. And let let me just go ahead and, and tell you something there's a lot of envy in the church, there always has been, there's a lot of jealousy. There's a lot of people, not maybe not the majority, Paul doesn't even say it's the majority, he just says it's some, but there's enough of it to where you can mark it down that there are people that want to use Jesus to elevate their own name. And Paul was like, yeah, they're doing this out of ambition, they're doing this out of envy, they're doing it out of selfishness. But notice how he's saying it, he's not saying, y'all pray for me. Don't pray for me. There's seven people in town. They hate me. Y'all just, y'all just pray for me. I'm not doing good right now. And, and you know he doesn't just wear the cloak of a doomed victim. He's calling it out. He's saying, yeah, we got some guys around here, and they're, they're preaching the gospel, but I know why they're doing it. Their message is right, but their motivation is sinful. And um, so he's not denying the reality, but he's, I just love the fact that he seems impervious to it. It's around him, but it hasn't gotten in him. Can I ask you, since we're all big boys and big girls in here tonight, um, when your opposition says what they say about you, misrepresents you because they misunderstood you, or maybe they understood you perfectly, and they're just tenacious, and they just wanted to misrepresent you. It's all around you. How are you doing to keep it from getting within you? Because that's the key. Because when it starts getting in you, not only are they winning, but the devil's winning. Because the devil gets frustrated when it's all around you, but you are just operating in the Holy Spirit. You're saying, no, nope, that's just the way people are. Jesus prayed to forgive the enemies. He, he told us to love our enemies. I am not going to give myself. The devil gets so mad when you walk in the Holy Spirit like that. But when you start lingering on it, and man, it's just it's amazing how it can happen. You can be sailing on this thing. And then somebody that you know is talking about you, you'll see them talking to somebody that you like, somebody that you're friends with, and you start saying, what's he saying to him? Or what's she saying to her? And all of a sudden, you start getting inward with this thing. And your reputation becomes the foremost thing in your thought instead of the glory of Jesus. And Paul was saying here, hey, when you are allowing your struggle to be the lesser factor and your joy to be the greater factor, you will never give in to the victim mindset. Um, I'm going to confess something here. I, think, I just think it's good. I don't think enough pastors are honest with the people they lead. A lot of pastors just want to look like, you know, they're already glorified. And I can assure you, I am not. Um, and you aren't either. And so I think it just helps. I don't want you to think that I'm, you know, a pathetic loser or anything. But, but I, I do want to make sure you know I'm in process. I, I'm still being sanctified. Um, the, the reality is, is I, I went through a season where I let that junk get in me. And I had no joy. It was a miserable, I I wish I could tell you it was a week. It was more like about off and on for about three years. And uh, I just couldn't get a grip on it. And it took that long for the Lord to bring me to this place where I would crucify my name, crucify my reputation, crucify what I thought people were thinking about me. And it wasn't that I was trying to hide stuff that was legit that they were saying about me. I knew I was being misrepresented. I knew I was being slandered. By the way, if you have aspirations for ministry, but you can't take people talking about you, you do not need to be in ministry. You better pack your bags and go do anything else. Don't go into ministry if you always have to be understood and loved. It's just not going to work that way. And, and the reality is, is when that stuff gets in you, you don't realize it until you get delivered from it. You're like, Man, I have not had consistent joy in in months, years. And God's so good. Listen, no condemnation on this. If you're in that place and you're you're saying, Jeff, that's kind of where I am. No condemnation on this. What I'm telling you is that he will set you free. He will absolutely set you free. It'll call you to release completely those that have wronged you, all of them, whatever they did. That is a prerequisite. To the joy unspeakable and full of glory, the prerequisite is you don't hold bitterness in your heart for those that have done you wrong. You're, you're nobody's victim. You're set free by the blood of Jesus. You're eternally loved by God Almighty. You are secure in Christ. You're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ on planet Earth. You're going to live in absolutely optimum glory forever and ever and ever you're going to get a glorified body your sins are going to be gone your sin nature is going to be gone you're going to be absolutely impeccably and eternally perfect so i cannot consider you a victim because again the light affliction gives way to a gives away to a further weight of glory And here's the amazing thing. It's not just kind of hold your breath and suck it in until you get to heaven. No, you can actually experience that joy now because he'll deliver you out of that, that sense of, oh no, I'm the constant victim. He'll deliver you out of it. Just because you've done wrong doesn't mean that you have to live as a victim. Just because you've been done wrong doesn't mean that you have to live like a victim. Either he is overcoming and triumphant and victorious, or it's just silly stuff we say. And I just believe that you believe. That he is all those things, and because he lives in you, you are therefore more than a conqueror. You're triumphant in Jesus. You are an overcomer. Those aren't just nice songs and Bible verses. Those are spiritual kingdom realities, and if we will believe and walk in them, we will experience the joy that attaches itself to them. Um, verses 15 to 16. When, when you are when you're responding to your hour trial like this, you're also going to grow in gratitude for your loyal friends. I love this, man. People, don't you love people that just stuck with you? Don't you love that? Are y'all here tonight? Because I'm, I'm, uh, Come on. You know, thank you. <laughs> help, help the preacher tonight, okay? Um, verse 15. He says, in contrast to those that are envious, factious, and preaching from rivalry, he says, but other people are preaching the gospel out of goodwill. They're doing it out of love. And Paul says, and it's not just a general love. He says, they know that I am put here in this prison for the defense of the gospel. I love this. Paul's saying, yeah, there's some stinkers out there. And he mentions them, but he actually kind of just kind of fixates on the true friends for a moment. And he's saying, there are others, and those are the ones that kind of owned his attention. He glances at the bad guys, but he fixates on those that are loyal. And he mentions so many of them in, in the letter of the Romans. He, I think at the end of the book of Romans, when, when he's, he's writing them, he, he mentions like 30-something people that he's doing life with. It's a different season than this. But, but Paul, as, as motivated as he was on the big picture as apostolic and uh, missionary-oriented as he was, Paul loved people. And when he found some that were real, he mentioned them by name, and God saw fit to preserve a lot of those names right here in the Bible. But these he's talking about, he doesn't mention them uh, by name, but he's saying, I could sit here, in essence, I could sit here and groan and gripe all day and pout and get depressed over those that are misrepresenting me, those that are purposefully trying to hurt me while I'm incarcerated they're doing damage to my reputation I can focus on them if I want to but I'm not going to because there's a lot more out of them that are advancing the gospel boldly and they're doing it in love not only love with Jesus but they love me and they understand that I'm not in prison because I'm a terrible apostle by the way a lot of people think when when your hour of trial comes it's because you did something wrong remember that person in your life the person that made sure that they rehearsed, They're like Job's friends, you know? Job and the fundamentalist friends that he had when he was suffering, and they told them that, you know, hey, the reason why you're suffering is because you've sinned. That's great. I love having those people around in your, when, when the bottom drops out. And, and isn't it amazing? There always seems to be one. And, and for, for Paul, it was, uh, it was completely different. He's like, yeah. I love the fact that while I'm in here dealing with this, they know I'm here because I did the right thing, not the wrong thing. And we need to be real careful when we see a brother or a sister who's going through it. And there's a temptation, a possibility in our heart that we could get all judgmental on. We could think, yeah, well, if she had just done this or if he had just done that, do you remember that kind of thing about them that we always thought might be an open door for the enemy? And all of a sudden we start getting real spiritual when somebody's going through um, a very extremely difficult time. Do you know some people that we judge for going through a bad time and we assume it's sin? It's the exact opposite. It's because they're living righteously for the glory of God and the devil's mad at them. And, and we have just got to turn in our Pharisee cap. And, and, you know, and, and, and stop that nonsense. None of us in the room are qualified to, to accurately judge everybody else's motivations. Actions are easier to judge, but when we start you know, thinking we're the spiritual scientist who gets the you know, Holy Ghost microscope and we can see into the depths of their soul, we know what their motivations are, we have stepped out of line, we have crossed over a boundary that never belonged to us. And so Paul is saying here, I, I'm just going to... Declare that my focus is on those who stick with me. You may not have everybody on your side, but maybe this week, let me just be so practical, it might make you yawn. Maybe this week, that person who stuck by you, that person who never gave up on you, that person who believed in you when even you were struggling to believe in in yourself, just go ahead and take a moment And show some level of kindness, appreciation, and gratitude to them today. Do it tonight. Do it this week. And just let them know, hey, you know, a lot of people didn't stick with me. But you did. And I praise God for you. We get down to the very last verse. We're going to get done a little early tonight. That never happens. You know what I did? I picked five less verses than I've done the previous two weeks. And (laughs) look, amazingly, the series might take... Six weeks longer, but the, the, the messages will get done. Let's, let's look in verse number 18. So, and in, in you're in your magnifying Jesus in your hour of trial. It's going to happen when kingdom perspective owns your mind. You're seeing all your circumstances through the bigger lens of God's kingdom. You're experiencing the reality that your joy is eclipsing your struggle because you're not, you're not feeling victimized by your struggle. Um, your struggle can be a struggle without you feeling like, you know, you are permanently and perpetually victimized by it and then in your hour of trial when you're magnifying Jesus you're going to discover that your faith is real a faith that can't be tested should never be trusted a faith that can't be tested should never be trusted this is, this is, this is tough but folks we have to have this God knows, the, the Bible says that the Lord knows those that are his. But do you know, I'm going to get to the verse 18 in a second. You, you, you have to go through some things for you to know how real your faith is. God already knows. But there is a different dynamic to your walk with Jesus When you go through something and you made it out on the other side and you actually grew in your confidence in God. Paul says in verse number 18, remember he's talking about the people that are preaching negatively, bad motivations. He says, so what? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So so let's let's just hunker down here for a bit. Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me right now. Paul is experiencing circumstances that are personally very painful. He's not pretending like it doesn't hurt. He's just saying it doesn't hurt enough to knock me off my game. He's saying, yeah, they're out there preaching the gospel, maligning my name, envious and jockeying for position while I've been taken out, and he almost shrugs. He's like, eh, he's like, as long as the name of Jesus is being magnified. He said, if that's happening, I've got such joy. This is what all of us have to come to. And I'll just go ahead and tell you. um, God needs to be able to trust you with pain as you journey in faith. He needs to be able to trust you with that. Anybody can give lip service to the goodness of God when life is good. You got 15 people, you know, and they're, they're like your life backup singers. They're harmonizing with you in everything you say. And, they're, you know, they're, it's like wherever you go, you got an entourage of affirmation. Well, who couldn't give God the glory? But when tragedy hits you, when pain hits you, and man, the enemy gets active When tragedy hits a Christian, when a Christian gets hurt, when life ambushes a Christian, the enemy doesn't sit down with popcorn and candy and watch what happens. He gets involved. And he starts accusing God to you. He starts accusing you to you. He starts accusing other people to you. He starts whispering in your ear, and you believed all that stuff you heard in church. Where's your God now? If God was good, then why didn't he stop and you fill in the blank, right? Paul is taking his situation, and I'm just applying the general principle to all of our lives. Paul is saying, you know what? Yes, this is happening to me. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I've been unjustly accused. Yes, I'm incarcerated. I've lost everything. Yes, it's true that while I'm helpless in prison, humanly speaking, there are other Christians, preachers, that are kicking me while I'm down as they preach. Some word must have gotten back to Paul about some of the things that all these other preachers were sharing in Rome and in different parts of of the kingdom. And, And Paul's saying, but you know what? In all of their antagonism against me, they're still giving the right message of Jesus being Lord and so Paul is literally having to say if that's happening some of them are preaching him for the right reasons, some are preaching him for the wrong reasons Paul says, hey as long as Jesus is getting the glory and that's not lip service by the way It'd be lip service if it was some kind of, you know, Paul had a hangnail or something. Paul's, Paul's talking about a major implosion in his life, and his, his answer is this. He's like, it doesn't overly matter that my struggle is real. It is that through my struggle, the great kingdom mission of God Almighty to honor his son and save souls, that's still happening. Um. What's interesting here, just a little bit of a side note, my guess is that the people who were running their mouths about him probably felt pretty righteous in doing so, and they probably had a heart for the Lord. Let me tell you what happens. Sometimes when people are anti-me or anti-you, we assume they're anti-Christ, and, and slandering me isn't the same thing as abandoning Jesus. Doing you wrong isn't the same thing as apostatizing against God Almighty. That people are complex. People still struggle with the flesh and their sin, and they, they, they still have aspects of their, their lives that are, are, are in process of being sanctified. And who knows, man? Maybe if we're just gonna be optimistic for a moment, maybe some of those guys repented. Maybe some of them finally aligned their motive with their message and their motive became right. The, the danger is this. This is, this is such a struggle for so many people, and the enemy uses this. When we find out that somebody that we thought was real in the kingdom turns out not to be real in the kingdom, the temptation is to reject anything we ever learned from them. Y'all know about pastors and leaders that have fallen and morally imploded and done all of these things, and the enemy wants to not only ruin that, that person's life, but come in and plunder every good thing you ever learned from that flawed individual. When, when a man of God falls, nothing of God himself falls. And so God uses flawed people. And so when somebody does us wrong, our flesh wants to say, well, hope they tell the devil I said hey when they go to hell. You know, we start thinking, and, and if, if they're against me, they can't in any way be for God. And the reality is sometimes people that are against you actually love the Lord, they're just operating in some form of blindness or a, a place of weakness in their flesh. I, listen, do you want to see your enemies in heaven? I do. There's not anybody in my life that I don't want to see get saved, set free, redeemed. I want to see it here in this life. But if I don't ever get to see him down here on the horizontal, when we go vertical, I want to be able to see that person in glory. And you know what? There's going to be such abundant, unsuppressed love and oneness there. I'm praying that as we press through our pains, that we'll be mature and discerning enough, especially if it's relational issues, that we'll stop and instead of imploding instead of starting to get jaded against the church and jaded against spiritual leaders and jaded and bitter against Christians and that's it I'm not, I'm not going to be around Christians anymore just give me my podcast and my Bible and my, my Bethel music and I'm just going to have church with me and Jesus listen God is sovereign and he doesn't stop every bad thing from happening. And when a bad thing shows up at your doorstep, one component of it is you can find out if your faith is real. And you can't know it until sometimes God touches your Isaac. God looked at Abraham gave him the covenant, told him all of these awesome things that were going to be attached to his life, and they had to come through Isaac. And then God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. And Abraham would have done it. In essence, Abraham did do it. Inwardly, he did it. It is not beyond God, not because he's cruel, not because he's unjust, Not because he's unpredictable and scary. That's not the image I'm painting. What I'm saying is this God knew what Abraham would do, but Abraham didn't know what Abraham would do until God put that test in front of him. And Abraham comes out of that thing knowing where he was with the Lord. Abraham understood more about his soul from that time moving forward. He wasn't perfect, but he understood more about his soul moving forward from that laying down of Isaac than he ever did beforehand. And So as I close up tonight, I just want to be so precise with this. I'm, I'm actually feeling like the Holy Spirit on this, and I don't know where it's landing tonight, and I don't need to know. I think it can generally land on all of us, but I actually think that the Lord's ministering to, to a handful of people very precisely here tonight. Do you know that you can pass that test? Do you know that he can lay something before you? And you'll press through because you're that convinced that he's good. And if you don't know that, and by the way, don't let your mind wander because you're thinking, well, if God tells me to lay down my Isaac, literally my kid, I I don't know if I can do that. That's because you don't have grace for it yet. But what you need to know is this, what you've got to know is that when your test comes, and it'll be uniquely tailored for you, it'll be fashioned for you, life will present it, and, and God, though he can stop it, he doesn't always stop it. But, but when he lets it come, it's because he knows you can pass it. He knows he can trust you with it. it it's not a matter of God trying to figure it out. He knows you can. That's why he allowed it. But he wants you to have the experience of the test coming and it it, it pressing everything out of you that doesn't need to be. And then once that has happened, you've still got your arms raised to the Lord, your hands open to heaven, and your heart affixed to his goodness. He wants you to know that you can pass the test. And when you do, my friends, I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't mean you'll never get tested again, but man. Like right now, I've just got like this movie playing in my head of all these things God's taken me, me and my family through. And, and when you get on the backside of it, somebody better testify, when you get on the backside of it, you can say, oh man, I am so grateful that he let me walk through that valley with him. And you'll get to the point where you say, if I could turn back the clock and never go through it, I wouldn't do it. Because what I gained through the test was worth what it cost me. Let's stand to our feet tonight. Five minutes early. True to my word. Some of y'all think thinking I'm supposed to be done at 8.30. You're, like, You're 10 minutes late, man. No, 8.45. Would you bow your head? Would you do that? I don't need to know. I really don't. I don't even want to. But some of you are going through this. Some of you, Some of you are coming out of it. I want to tell you, you that have pressed through, you that, while acknowledging weakness and imperfections, your faith did not fail you. And I want to tell you, he is so proud of you. God can be proud. The rest of us, our pride does us in, but not God. God is so proud of you as his child. He is so pleased with you. It doesn't matter that you didn't score 100 on the test. He gave you grace, and you stuck with him. You trusted, though it felt like it was going to kill you. He is so deeply pleased. You need to receive that. During your testing, the enemy came against you. Your flesh tried to betray you. Other people misunderstood you. You couldn't pray. All you had was groanings that could not be uttered. But here you are today, and you're still pressing in. Father, affirm your kids tonight. Just affirm all who are still pursuing you, loving you, trusting you, waiting on you. Holy Spirit, galvanize our hearts that the Father is one we can trust with everything within us, no matter the circumstance. Help us to magnify Jesus in the hour of our own trial. In his name, amen.